HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program has been brought to you by Fairway Market, like no other market, a New York City institution that sells the best local, national, and international artisan foods for prices that can't be beat. For more information, visit fairwaymarket.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. When you follow a recipe, some of the ingredients that are usually always taken for granted are add salt and pepper. But you know, maybe you better look at that price of pepper. We'll find out why on A Taste of the Past. Commodities markets and food prices, supermarkets, they're linked much more closely than ever before. And here to tell us all about it, and the price of pepper, <laughs> what's traded on the market and, and what controls the prices of our market basket, is Kara Newman. And Kara is um, an author and fellow member of the Culinary Historians of New York. She uh, normally writes about... Uh, spirits and cocktails and has some wonderful books the spicy cocktail help me out here Kara. spice and ice spice and ice the spicy cocktail book and a new one coming out in may cocktails for a crowd but there is a really interesting book not that they're not all interesting but one that is not about cocktails all about called the secret financial life of food from commodities markets to supermarkets and Kara, i i'm Looked at this book, did a speed read through it, and realized, whoa, I have to go back and read this in depth and more slowly. It's not a big book, but it is so packed with information that, not surprising information necessarily, because we all know that certain foods were traded on the market, but but the history of food through the markets was was tr- truly amazing to me. It's You did a wonderful job. And I do. What? Tell me a little bit about what. First of all, how you got into writing a book about about the commodities markets and 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 culinary history. Okay, sure. Um, 
Well, my first career wasn't in food at all. Um, I actually started writing about the financial markets. That was my, my first job. When I came to the culinary historians, I was a financial writer who just had a passing obsession with cookbooks and seemed like a good place to, to learn more. And while I was um, a financial writer, um, I started off writing about equities and fixed income. And at one point, I was given a new and what turned out to be a very serendipitous task. I was asked to create um, a regular update about the commodities market. But the catch was I didn't know anything about commodities. <laughs> so I had to go out and, and learn on the fly. And I started reading Barron's on a regular basis. I started um, I took a, a class to update myself on the commodities market. And while I was there, this was, of course, about 10 years ago or so, and it was about the same time that I joined the culinary historians. Mm-hmm. Um, so everything kind of comes together all at, all at once. Um, I went to that commodities class, opened up my course book, and I kind of flipped through, and there's a page on, on gold and silver and different metals and another page on um, oil and, and things like that. And then there was another page, and I looked at it and I said, this is like a menu. <laughs> and it, it listed all the different food commodities. It was things like soybeans and pork bellies, which traded then, and cocoa and sugar and, and on and on. And it just really crystallized everything all at once. It just made me think, well, this is about the financial markets, of course, but it's also about food. It's about the things that we eat. And uh, and who controls and who controls that and who controls the the prices when we go to the supermarket? Absolutely. Right? And, and you know, and the farmers' futures. Uh, not commodities futures, <laughs> <laughs> um, but what can you give us a little quickie explanation on food versus food commodity? Absolutely. Um, Michael Pollan in Omnivore's Dilemma really lays this out very neatly. Um, he talks about food versus food commodities, and he talks about a trip he took to uh, visit um, a, a farmer, a corn farmer. And he explains how uh, the different grades that we consume are different than than what's traded. When you go to the commodities um, contracts, everything is given a very specific grade. It's grade grade A. It's it's class C. It's uh, it's all lined up very carefully, so um, you can easily trade different amounts and know you're going to get back exactly what you're you're putting in. It'll be this class of of corn. It'll be that grade of of butter or whatever. Um, but when you see corn, for example, um, the same beautiful corn you get at the, the green market, those you know gorgeous ears of corn you, you slather with butter and, and eat at home, it's very different from commodity corn, which is used primarily for feeding livestock and for processing into ethanol and things like that and into corn sugar. Um, but that's really... It's it's much harder. I spoke with an economist who had gone out and actually tried both types of corn to see if you could eat them. He says it's it's edible, but it's a little crunchy and it doesn't taste like much. Being an Indiana girl, we called that the difference between feed corn and table corn. <laughs> right, feed, feed grade and food grade. That's exactly how yeah. you refer to it. <laughs> right, um, and corn, of course, is a, a, a huge, uh, you know, a huge commodity in its in itself. I mean, there are so many other things that are traded, but you hit. Hit on corn, and that, yeah, as you said, corn is used for so many other things, you know, as soybeans are too. But backing up a little bit, wh- when did all this? When did all this start? The the commodities, the, the trade? whole trading, yeah, the tra- commodities trading. Well, 
In theory, as long as we've had food, we've had a way to to trade. I mean, it goes back as far back as we've had markets in in Roman times. Some say it goes back to the the Bible, um, but. The modern structure of commodities trade in America, as we know it, really goes back to the 1800s, and uh, in particular to um, Chicago is really where a lot of it started, and New York at the same time. You have these two parallel tracks going on. Well, Chicago being the crossroads there of the of the whole breadbasket. Exactly, you know, and it's interesting to see sense. where the the different commodities started trading. A lot of it has to do with where the food was either grown or the ports where it came in. So. Um, while Chicago, of course, became the, the center for, for meats and grains, in New York you had a lot of the port cities. So you had, um, across the, the East Coast altogether, you had the port cities. But New York really became the center for trading things like cocoa and sugar and anything that really had, and coffee, anything that really had to be shipped in, shipped mm-hmm. in through New York and the other port cities. Yeah, interesting. Of course, we know, as you mentioned, um, in ancient Roman times and, and even through the you know, mentioned in the Bible there, um, there was trading of, I mean, grain was always, grain was always kept and stored and withheld and doled out and, and used as uh, salt. Salt was used as money. I mean, these foodstuffs were very valuable. They knew when they had a, you know, something of, of, uh, value to, uh, to trade with. It's amazing how many of our words for money came from the different food commodities. Um, uh, pecuniary it has its roots in in cattle. Um, uh, that, that surprised yeah that you said it came from cattle and I that was a that was surprised me. Yeah. There's so many more. I mean, Wall Street has its name from the wall that was put up between where the the colonists were were living and the the wild pigs there and, and huh. wild cattle depending on who you believe they're trying to keep out of their out of their uh, living quarters. Uh, so much of it really goes back to money. Yeah. And, that, and the wall has so much meaning now, <laughs> the Wall Street and what's traded. So, so tell me a little. So, when we started out, what was one of the first things that was um, in in what we consider the more modern commodities markets in the 1800s? What was one of the first things that was traded? Well, interestingly, a lot of the commodities markets here in New York really started as butter and cheese exchanges. Those were really some of the first ones. Um, I had a really interesting task in trying to piece together all the the different exchanges and how they made their way into the the very limited number of exchanges we have today. I mean, we pretty much have the Chicago Merck and the Intercontinental Exchange here Mm -hmm. in New York, and there are no longer all these little regional exchanges. But they really started as a lot of very small uh, butter and egg exchanges where you would have the the merchants living, um, living nearby. They'd go to... um, the area that's now Tribeca, mm-hmm. where they would bring the the butter and eggs that maybe were brought in from New Jersey or um, or the Hudson Valley or even parts of of Brooklyn, wherever the the food was harvested, and they would trade back and forth amongst themselves in what eventually became um, the the produce exchange located downtown. Hmm, interesting. And there, there's some great stories about how um, the eggs would be brought in in barrels full of oats to cushion the eggs, hmm. and they would be trucked in that way. And uh, the the retailers would, well, the retailers, the the traders, the merchants, um, they were essentially small small businessmen. They weren't the traders as we know them now in, in the 1800s. They were more like small small retailers, 
and they would do their business in the morning, and then they would walk a little further downtown to what became the, the Mercantile Exchange, and they would, they would trade for a couple hours, and they'd go back and have you know, a lovely, leisurely lunch and hmm. call it a day. Now, why, and, and, of course, a lot of people don't realize that eggs were, well, are on a, on a farm, but not in, in uh, major production. Eggs were a very seasonal product. Um, you know, the hens wouldn't lay during the, <laughs> during and the winter. True, and that seasonality was, is so important. Uh, I mean, it's important in every aspect of, of trading. I think in terms of what makes for uh, a commodity, it's, of course, something, from a food perspective, it's something that we either, either it's very important to us, to our, our survival, corn, soybeans, or it's something that's, something that we truly value from an emotional perspective, like mm. cocoa or coffee. You yeah. know, we don't require either, but I'm willing to pay a premium for both of those. Desirability, yes. Exactly. <laughs> but then that volatility on top of that, as long as you can make money in that, and seasonality plays into that as well. Um, a lot of the, the products that we trade now, it seems sort of puzzling, you know, why do we trade you know, X or, or Y, a lot of the reason we started trading a lot of these is because there is that seasonality. Mm. And with the, the eggs, um, the hens only laid for a certain period of the year. Um, and then when it came to the, the colder weather months, I mean, people still want their eggs. Mm -hmm. And the smart people would have put them away in, in cold storage. And it still amazes me that we had cold storage. We'd have these eggs, the shells coated with this is before refrigeration. We'd have mm -hmm. the eggs coated with a light layer of vegetable oil and put into what were essentially ice houses, cooling houses, for months and months and months and months. And then those very smart people who would put them away into cold storage would take them out and sell them for a very nice premium. Yeah, you want an egg? Here, I've got one. <laughs> <laughs> the golden egg, right? And the restaurants would buy them and the, yeah. the markets would buy them, the hotels. I mean, you want your eggs? We've got eggs. So then refrigeration came along. I guess that kind of put the kibosh on uh, the butter and egg trade. Huh? To a degree, absolutely. And, yeah. and little by little, yeah, we had, um, we had frozen eggs that traded as its own um, commodity for a while. There were three different tiers in egg trading. There was, of course, fresh eggs, which were the, the gold standard and still are today. We had storage eggs, which uh, eventually, that was the first one, I think, that stopped trading. Uh, they were very popular with the, the military, I believe. Um, and then there were the frozen eggs, and those were the storage eggs, which had already been left often for, for many months in cold storage, which then were candled. They were held up to a flame to see if there were any imperfections inside, any blood clots or whatever. Um, and then those would be broken into an enormous fat and later frozen, and those were used to by manufacturers to make things like pies and noodles and, and mayonnaise. Yeah, that, that, I, I, I was very intrigued to read that in your book. I thought that was great. And, I mean, it's it's not uncommon today. I mean, they have the dehydrated eggs used and all the, you know, the, the pre-mixed, you know, industrial vats right. of eggs. Yeah, right, you know, and the liquid eggs really replaced those. But those were three separate contracts that traded as futures at different times. And what was it with the butter and egg men? They got, <laughs> they got kind of a reputation. What was that all about? Ah, uh, the butter and egg men. Um, they were so important for a while. They were part of the cultural lexicon. It's, it's almost sad that they're, it's pretty much lost to the modern generation. But for a while, they were like the, the butter and egg man was like the modern day Wall Street big shot. 
there was a, a play in the 1920s called Butter, The Butter and Egg Man, and it was about um, a rube in the Midwest who's kind of taken for a ride by these eastern city slickers. And it was a play that did quite well. It was presented in several different venues around the country, uh, you know, went on the road, did very well, later became a, a black and white film, silent film, became um, a color film in the 40s. There was a Louis Armstrong song, I Want a Big Butter and Egg Man. <laughs> and he was really a very important figure. But also kind of had a reputation as being a, not a not a sophisticated, not as we think of the, you know, the, the the three-piece suit, you know, trader, but kind of a rough-and-tumble kind of guy. The right? butter and egg man was a sucker. <laughs> <laughs> he was, his reputation was he, was he was a dupe, he was naive, he had a taste for bottled blondes, and uh-huh. not very sophisticated, but, you know, had, had the money and, um, you know, liked to, liked to spend it, an easy mark. There was actually a, a case in Minneapolis, a, a, a butter and egg man who was not so well-to-do, actually sued the the theater that put on the butter and egg man play saying you know my For wife defamation yes yes saying my wife now thinks i'm a you know i'm, I'm a, a philanderer, philanderer and and i'm gonna sue you for defamation of character and he won oh i'll be darned yeah <laughs> good for him uh well okay so butter and eggs were traded along this time other things started were you know being traded as well but what was that what was the next big um food commodity that came along as, as something to be traded? I think probably grain mm-hmm. was developing at around the same time. Um, in the Midwest, it had such enormous significance. It wasn't only limited to trading in Chicago, although the, the markets, of course, the, the famous place, the, the Chicago Board of Trade, I should say, is the famous place where, where grain was traded. Um, but there were smaller grain exchanges all over the, the Midwest, uh, a couple of which have survived. Um, but there was even a, a rift between in, in Chicago. There were the, the two, the grain exchange came first and it was built up to be this, um, very gentleman's exchange, um, you know, a white glove exchange. Mm. Uh, these were the, the gentleman traders. And then on the other side of town, you have the Chicago Merck and those were, um, where the, the meats were traded, uh, pork and, and cattle. And uh, there were a lot of, of immigrants who really got into that side. There were a lot of Italian immigrants, Irish immigrants, and it really had more of a, a hard scrabble reputation. You know, you were dealing with the, the meats and the pork processing industry. And on the other side, you know, the, the grain traders, you know, didn't really dirty their hands. Huh, interesting. That's great. Uh, well, we're going to talk a little bit more about how the markets really influenced what we eat um, and how much we paid, and not only that, but what was actually even planted and grown. And a little bit about some other questions I have futures when we come back in the future after this short break. <laughs> You're listening to Mad as Dogs by the Hollows on the Heritage Radio Network.org. Hi, I'm Steve Jenkins from Fairway Markets. 
We support Heritage Radio Network because all you folks listening are so genuine, so dedicated to serious food, so much a part of what this country needs to strive to become. People like you are few and far between, and it's obvious to us at Fairway that we've got to stick together. Our desire is that the word gets out about Heritage Radio Network in its support for serious food, foodstuffs that offer memorability and, and timelessness authenticity and and rarefied quality. This country grew too fast to have established any degree of a heritage. Europe had centuries to develop one. America has not. Heritage Radio Network serves to hasten the evolution of a society that often appears coarse and uninterested. For more information, please visit fairwaymarket.com. We're back on A Taste of the Past, and I am speaking with Karen Newman, the author of The Secret Financial Life of Food. We're talking about the, the commodities markets and how that really affects the price of our market basket when we, or what we eat, the choices we make. And, Kara, there are so many things to talk about. We're going to try to get it all in. Um, and one of them in particular is that what people don't understand when they hear about the trading of, of the different foods is is when we buy something at the market with the percent of, of what we're really paying for. Oh, oh yeah. Tell me, there's a, you have an interesting little fact in your, in your book about that. One of my favorite stats in the entire book is uh, from, from the USDA. They put out a study um, focusing on how much a box of corn flakes, um, how much the the actual corn commodity counts for in a box of, of corn flakes. And it's really just a, a tiny percentage of only uh, 15 to 20% of mm. what goes into your box of, of corn flakes is that, uh, that corn commodity. And the rest all, the rest of that, if you were to put a dollar, um, a pie chart, right. a pie chart, <laughs> right. Every dollar that goes to that, that box of, of corn flakes, um, You've got 20% going to corn, the rest goes to transportation, goes to manufacturing, goes to real estate, labor, uh, the marketing of, of the Advertising, the yes, right. Absolutely. Of course. Fuel, even, uh, to truck it from point A to point B. Oh, amazing. It, it, anything but corn is what goes into your box of cornflakes, is what right. they're saying. Well, and these markets fluctuate tremendously. Um, so talk to me a little bit about futures in food commodities. Uh, well, futures really play a, a very important point in what we pay at the, the supermarket, and I think that's really one of the most important points in the in the book. Uh, I mean, there are lovely stories that go around it, but at the end of the day, um, what does it really mean to what we're we're paying? Um, first of all, I think it's really useful that um, although you go to the commodities prices in the the newspaper you see they're going up and down up and down every day multiple times a day and if we had those kinds of volatility swings when every time we went to the supermarket it would drive us crazy right uh no one would be able to budget their their shopping no one would know what to pay it would be absolute chaos um so one of the roles that the commodities market plays is to smooth out those uh that volatility and on average if they're 
is a sustained increase or or decrease on in prices at the commodities market, it takes about a year and a half before it filters into prices at the supermarket. And that's only if it's a sustained rise or, or fall. It also plays a really um, important part in helping um, manufacturers and retailers and even uh, people at the green market set prices for food. Uh, this is what's called price discovery. And it's actually a very... Uh, key role that the commodities market plays. It gives a, a baseline for, for pricing products. Um, otherwise, you might not know where to, where to price something, um, even just something as simple as uh, corn to, to follow that, that right. same commodity. Yeah. Yeah. How would you know where to set the price? Uh, so it really helps to, to do that. And then the other thing it, it does that's really critical, I think, is it's helpful for um, helping uh, people in the restaurant and manufacturing business uh, predict what prices are going to be further down the ro- road. Um, so, I mean, they are futures and they do have a, a predictive element. And uh, I had a really interesting conversation uh, with an economist who whose job as a consultant is to work with restaurant companies, for example, to help them determine um, not just what they're going to serve, but even entire concepts for a restaurant. If a hamburger is, uh, if you're building a restaurant around a hamburger concept, for example, if uh, he can tell that a restaurant chain, oh, beef prices are likely to skyrocket in the future, um, that means a lot in terms of your your bottom line. Right. Um, should you change the menu? Should you change well, for chicken the- burgers? <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Should you be adding on things to pad it? Should they be cheeseburgers or bacon burgers? Um, should you not even do a burger chain at all? Will it be that crazy? Will you lose that much money? Should you be thinking about, um, you know, a tofu restaurant instead? Hmm, interesting. So actually, so these these markets, the trading. I mean, we always kind of malign the, you know, the the uh, the exchange market when it comes to food, and and but you know, there are so many people in the world to feed, and and there's a lot of food being produced you know, produced and grown on a, on a major level, the markets actually do a good thing then in terms of controlling, as you said, controlling that volatility. They play an important role. Um, I do think that there are good reasons in some cases to malign the commodities market. When you think about the, the players, the people who are actually doing the trading and who they're doing it um, on behalf of, um, the balance has really shifted over the past several years. Um, there are people who are primary players in the the market who are buying and selling to to hedge their their business, and those are those are legitimate. Those make, it makes a lot of sense. That's really mm-hmm. what the market was created for. Uh, but increasingly, you have a much larger group of pure speculators who aren't really interested in what happens to the food or the people that the food is meant to serve. Um, they just care about making money mm. and. There's actually been quite a lot of, of scandal and, and press attention around those speculators asking, Absolutely. do they just drive food prices so sky high that no one can afford to feed people who are hungry? All right. Well, you mentioned bacon um, earlier. And of course, we would be remiss if we were not to talk about pork bellies when oh, we're talking about belly. the market. Um, and that, talk about, talk about one item that that has fluctuated so much that it's managed to make itself practically extinct and then 
come up again. Tell and, you know, and and it, it kind of signify it, it is a signifier of the whole commod- food commodity market in itself. It's Tell so us, iconic. It. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I mean the the pork bellies they traded for only fifty years. It's hard to believe, and they stopped trading as of last year. Pork bellies are. I mean, for those who don't actually know what a pork belly is, it's just the the underside, the undercut of the of the pig is the belly. Um, there was actually a lot of um, a lot of questioning over whether to actually call it that. Uh, people wanted to call it uncured bacon Un- futures. Yes, uncured bacon, right? Pork belly was considered <laughs> unseemly, but those what the pork processors called that cut, so that's what it eventually became. Um, but um, pork belly, which when cured and smoked becomes bacon, um, was a very important commodity to the the Chicago Stock Exchange. It really, I'm sorry, the Chicago Mercantile Exchange. It actually saved it at a time when um, it was close to going under because there had just been a very recent enormous scandal in onion futures. Onions. I mean, who would have guessed, right? Who would have guessed? <laughs> that onions were traded so so you know rampantly on the market. Unbelievable. But it almost took the exchange down. And uh, they the, the geniuses there had to put their heads together and figure out a new product to trade. And they settled on pork bellies, which started trading in the early 60s and stopped trading just... Um, just last year. And it actually made me a little sad because um, it's so iconic. And it's sad to see it go also because nothing really has come back onto the market to replace it. Little by little, we've had a lot of food commodities leaving trading and there's not been much to come back in and and really bolster it up but not to fear folks pork belly has not disappeared from the market <laughs> oh, from no. the supermarket it's just it's not it's not being traded yeah because pork is still um enjoying a wonderful popularity more so than ever before it seems no doubt the, the pork bellies and the and the bacon yeah it is really symbiotic it really had a, a good boost um 10 years ago or, or more when people started serving pork belly on the, the menu again. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden, pork belly got more attention. And I, I personally think that it helped stave off its extinction. Hmm. Interesting. Um, there is um, a, um, a discussion that uh, uh, some statistics that you included in the book, which were astounding to me. And that was um, a United Nations report showed that, and this was, talks about how the market has grown so rapidly, that um, it, show, it, it showed that the money invested in food commodities shot up from $13 billion in 2003 to $260 billion just five years later. That is amazing. I mean, I, I, what other market has had that, that kind of an increase? I can't think of one, and I don't think it's at all a coincidence that uh, the New York Stock Exchange is now in talks with with commodities exchanges to to merge, and it's because there's so much money to be made in the in the commodities market. This is actually very very recent, um, but as, as I was saying before, there's speculators are a very large portion of that that trading volume there. Um, hedge funds account for mm-hmm. another huge portion. There's um, there's a segment called passive investing, uh, where it's not necessarily people getting in there and actively saying, well, today I, I want to buy soybeans and tomorrow I want to sell corn. It's uh, it's lumped into part of a larger portfolio. It's, it's, um, it's, it's part of an index. Commodities are included as part of a, a larger portfolio. And when you think about how many funds are out there, mutual funds, pension funds, 
Um, it just goes on and on. There's a tremendous amount of money going into the commodities market. The volume is just amazing. And the fact that it ties back to our food supply is actually kind of scary. It is. And, and especially when you, when you hear about um, and read about you know dairy farmers and, and farmers in general and the farm aid bills and people suffering trying to feed um, a population and people then people making money off of it, you know, hand over exactly. fist. Sometimes and, people ask me, is there any way to opt out of the commodities market? You know, some people just don't approve. And really the only answer is to buy direct from the manufacturers, to buy at your green market, to buy right. from your, your local farmer. Back to the organic, locavore, you know, community garden movement, the only way that we can avoid that, right, that loop in, Absolutely. The, in the commodities markets. There is so much more about this that is intriguing and um, it's worthy of a book. Gee, I think, you, <laughs> I think that's been written. But it truly, it truly is an eye opener. And um, I mean, so many things you think. You know, we think of, of course, spices. And I, I mentioned pepper because pepper was something that was was really heavily traded, and the prices, you know, fluctuated on pepper so much. And people took it for granted, you know, add salt and pepper, right? And yet we've never traded salt. And never traded salt, right. That right. kind of baffles me. Yeah, I mean, salt, as I said, salt in the early, earliest in ancient Roman times was used as money, but never traded. Mm-hmm. What isn't traded that to you is, it's interesting or puzzling that hasn't been traded? Oh, um, aside from salt, <laughs> I didn't mean to throw you on that. No, but. no, not at all. I I have actually a short list of commodities that I think could be traded. All right, yeah. Um, one I think is um, I think olive oil could one day be be traded. Here. But isn't that traded in some of the foreign markets? It is. There is uh. a Spanish market that trades uh-huh. olive oil, uh, so I I think it could be ripe for trading here. Um, I think that grapes could one day be be traded here. Right now, we do trade frozen orange juice futures. It's the only one of the produce futures left. In the- you did make reference to that in your book in, in the, from the movie Trading Places, right? <laughs> oh, that's <laughs> such a, a fun movie. scene. Yeah, it was. Uh, my publisher even found a clip and posted it. So <laughs> I was, that, that was a stroke that's of brilliance. Yeah. Um, but we have frozen orange juice futures trading. We have um, apple juice concentrate uh, poised to start trading. People have been hmm. working very actively on getting that. But it'll be more of a, a global product since it does trade quite heavily so after orange juice and apple juice what's the next greatest uh, fruit product that we're consuming on a global basis it's grapes Mm. and i guess that shows the change in well from the american market the change in our tastes olive oil and wine you know change our our taste changed i mean back in the in the early 1800s that wasn't something that we were consuming on a regular basis absolutely yeah so it's not just the weather and what's happening on the farms. It's what we want also, right? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, the human appetite, human desire. Oh, yes. Supply and demand from the human appetite. Yeah. Well, Kara, it, it has been very interesting. And as I say, there's just so much more to learn about this, this subject. And I thank you for sharing your time. And, uh, and I will go back to your book and read it again. It's The Secret Financial Life of Food, From Commodity Markets to Supermarkets by Kara Newman. You've been listening to A Taste of the Past here on Heritage Radio Network, and I'm your host, Linda Palaccio. Thanks for listening to this program on heritageradionetwork.org. 
You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.